Katie Barnes, it is always good to have you on the show. Welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me, Pablo. Glad to be here. So I summon you here this time because the cover story you have produced for ESPN is not just great. It is also kind of embarrassing for me as a journalist because you write about the WNBA's reigning MVP, the best player in the league. And I realized pretty early on that I know very little about this person. Yeah, you know, you aren't alone. And that is kind of the point of the piece. John Quill Jones is somebody who has had this very steady rise in women's basketball, uh, but has been among the top players in the WNBA for years. You know, she was drafted in the top 10 in 2016. Rebound, Jones, the putback is good. The rookie had a GW. Won the WNBA's Most Improved Award in 2017, Sixth Player of the Year, the year after that. Jones goes And then, of course, you know, she won the MVP award last year. 31 for Jonquil Jones. Jonquil, can she hit again? Yes, she can. Bonner knew that was going down before Jonquil even released it. And yet, not very many people seem to know who she is. And she's not like a Tim Duncan who's trying to run away from the spotlight, right? She's not. You know, if you put a camera in front of Jonquil Jones, you're going to get magic. That's part of who she is. She's charismatic. She's fun, goofy. She's a really good time. I'm a very complex human being. <laughs> a lot of times I wear my heart on my sleeve. And one of the things that she talked about was that after she held that WNBA MVP trophy in her hands, she kind of expected other doors to open up for her. And instead, that didn't really happen. How is it that, like, I'm an MVP of the league and, like, I can literally count on one hand, like, the endorsements that I have and the things that I have going on outside of basketball? And we're halfway through the next season, and she's still feeling like, well, wait a minute. Like, where are my opportunities? Where are my flowers? How is it that I'm playing basketball at such a high level, but, like, you know, the endorsements and the other things that are supposed to come with it aren't really coming? Which caused her, and consequently me, to ask the question... Well, who gets to be a WNBA superstar? Superstardom is one of those concepts that we talk about all the time, but have never actually sat down and defined. Like, we know that skill, that performance clearly matters. Encore greatness is necessary, but it's also clear that it's not sufficient. And maybe you'd argue, as Justice Potter Stewart once did about pornography, that you just know superstardom when you see it. But today, we take a long look at the story of Jonquel Jones, whose visibility is the entire issue in the first place. I'm Pablo Torre. It is Tuesday, June 28th. This is ESPN Daily. So, Katie, you've already described Connecticut Sun forward John Quell Jones, the reigning WNBA MVP, as hilarious, as entertaining, as all of these things. But when did you know that she was going to be a fun subject for you to profile to begin with? When she came into the restaurant where we were meeting as kind of a pre-interview meetup, 
because you know, we didn't know each other very well. And so before we got in the chair and did the interview, wanted to kind of build some rapport. And she comes into this restaurant and Jonquil is 6'6", six, six, and these, this restaurant ceiling's not super tall. So she's already cracking jokes about how she's about to hit her head on the ceiling. And then she informs me that she just left her car running because she's got her golden doodles in her car. And I thought that was just wild. I was like, why is that the move? <laughs> she just like couldn't find a puppy sitter at the moment. And so the golden doodles were chilling in the car. And that was, I think, one of my favorite things. Um, but then, you know, what I remember most was just how much I laughed when I was around her. She just cracks these little jokes and just keeps you rolling. Like, she's just a good time. All vibes. Vibes are an underrated commodity. Oh, absolutely. You know, I asked her how she would kind of define her style, and her response was, I'm definitely more on the masculine side of the clothing that I wear. I always tell people I like wearing masculine clothes, but I love my vagina. I do not want to be a guy. I do not want to be a man. I'm very comfortable in who I am. Which is so candid, and I just really appreciate that um, in terms of her just being honest about who she is and being willing to communicate that to the world in a way that is so approachable and understandable. That's just what I feel comfortable in. Like, I feel, I feel comfortable wearing pants. I feel comfortable wearing button-up shirts. And that's just what it is. Like, it's nothing deeper than that. It's just being comfortable. When we were getting ready uh, for the shoot and she was being styled and, you know, it's the best thing about cover story is you get a little extra flair. And she immediately is just like, As long as y'all not putting me in a dress, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you don't put me in a dress, I'm fine. <laughs> and... I think that kind of sums it up. She spent a lot of time in her life putting herself in a box that was more palatable to other people and what was expected of her. And now she's just very open and honest about who she is and how she's going to express herself. And she's good with that. And thinking about it now, Katie, I also have to confess that, like, I'm pretty sure the most exposure I've gotten to Jonquil Jones is via that State Farm commercial where she says, I think, like, Six words? And I was only kind of vaguely aware that, in fact, this was Jonquil Jones. Right. Yeah. The whole thing is kind of like in a nondescript Costco. A lot of people assume NBA players can reach anything. Just like they assume they can't afford great insurance. <laughs> Jonquil is trying to help out Trey Young by getting him a jar of pickles, and he thanks her for that. Here you go. Thanks, Jonquil. And then... Boban comes over and gives her a jar of mustard, and she thanks him. Here's your mustard. Thanks, Boban. Because the bit is that they're all taller than each other. It's like a reverse Matryoshka doll, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and so in that sense, like, it's really endearing and very cute and funny. Uh, but nobody, including John Quell, really has the space to show off their winning personality. Need me to reach anything else? No. Because I can reach it. A surprisingly great race to fit in. It's worth noting that that deal for that particular commercial was done before she actually was awarded the MVP award, uh, even though it came out after uh, she was given that award. And you know, to even film that commercial, she had to like fold herself into a pretzel and fit it in after a game between another practice, fly across the country to do it. Like it was not something that was particularly easy for her to do. But she did it because she wanted to seize on that opportunity. But in terms of the larger theme, Katie, of squeezing into a box, of folding herself into this version of herself that other people expected, when did that dynamic really begin for her? At a pretty young age. 
You know, Drunkwell grew up in the Bahamas, uh, in Freeport to be specific, and she described her childhood as one of being very fun. A lot of playing outside, riding bicycles. Playing basketball, playing sports, running around. You know, all of those things that at least spoke to me as somebody who grew up in a small town. A lot of like community guidance. So I lived in an area that had like all of my family around. So it wasn't just my parents that were raising me. It was everybody in the community. But at the same time, you know, she became aware of certain rules and expectations of her as a girl. I feel like a lot of times there were things that, you know, little girls weren't supposed to do when I was growing up. Like, oh, little girls aren't supposed to sit like that, or you're wearing a dress, and different stuff like that that we, you know, just weren't allowed to do. Or you're a girl, you're not supposed to be whistling. How did that make you feel? Um, well, even when I was a kid, I could kind of tell, like, BS from non-BS, you know, like, like, girls aren't supposed to whistle. Now I can whistle really well now, you know, because they told me that I shouldn't be doing it, you know? So I was always the type of person who kind of, like, challenged the rules, but not in a bad way. Like, I was never a kid who wanted to be a rule breaker, but when I heard things that just didn't sound right, I always wanted to know why. Yeah, I didn't know there was an anti-whistling bias when it comes to girls. Yeah, me either. I was unaware that that was a thing. <laughs> but it was something that she pointed out, and I thought that was interesting. But I think speaks to, in some ways, the arbitrary nature of gendered expectations and how they're placed upon all of us in different ways and how we as kids and young people and then adults uh, interact with those expectations. When were you first introduced to basketball? Ooh. Um... I've been playing basketball and knowing about basketball my entire life. I can't really think of like a specific moment where I was really introduced to it, but like my first, I guess the first memory that I can remember is like me going to basketball practice with my dad and um, him like instructing the boys on his basketball team how to play and stuff like that and just like learning the game from him. So how does basketball fit into what she is or is not being encouraged to do? So basketball becomes the place where she doesn't have those expectations. She doesn't feel that kind of pressure. She could just be who she is. Now, of course, you know, there also were limits um, placed upon her being able to play basketball by her family. My mom used to always say like, oh, you put that basketball down. You're not supposed to be dribbling a basketball on Sunday. Like Sunday was like a day where you put the basketball up, you're inside the house, you clean up, you go to church. And I would always find a way to just like take my basketball and sneak over to my grandmother's house because she had a basketball court in her yard, and I just play all day over there. And so the rules that John Quell ends up challenging as a result of basketball, how do you describe the trajectory that the game sets her off on, just personally? You know, so many of the important points in her life that she talked about from an identity perspective had to do with basketball in one way or another. I remember, like, one time... Uh, we were playing against a team and I just had like these feelings and like, these emotions about like watching another player play and like I didn't understand what was going on, right? It was actually watching another girl play basketball that she was internally asking herself like, why can't I take my eyes off her? Why am I paying so much attention to her? Like she felt very drawn to this person. And like my cousin comes to me and he's like, Jonquil, like, 
you have to tell this girl I like her. You just have to let her know. And he's like, I just can't stop looking at her. Like the way she plays basketball, the way she dribbles. Like, I just can't stop looking. And like, I was sitting there like, whoa, this is what I'm feeling. Like, I feel exactly the same things that he's saying right now. Like he put everything into perspective for me. As a kid, I really didn't know how I felt. I was just like, why can't I, why can't I, what is, what is this going on? And then my cousin comes and he's like, tell this girl how I feel. And I'm just like, whoa, I feel like that too. And Jean-Claude's like, oh my God, I like this girl. That's what this means. And I kind of buried those feelings because for one, like we were strong in the church. You know, my dad had a very, he was very strict on like, you know, how he felt about same-sex relationships. Like when things like that came on TV, he didn't really want it to be on TV and stuff like that. I was like, okay, this is definitely something that I should not tell anybody and I should just keep to myself. An important context about the Bahamas is that for people who are queer or gay or lesbian or bi, historically, the country has not been particularly friendly to members of the LGBTQIA plus community. And that was something that John Quell felt uh, as she grew up. And so she immediately has this recognition and then proceeds to bury that. Yeah, same-sex relationships were illegal in the Bahamas, Katie, until 1991. Same-sex marriages and civil unions are still not legal in the Bahamas today. And John Quell Jones is also balancing the fact that she is a Christian whose faith is still important to her. But just in terms of getting from the Bahamas to America and then into the elite basketball pipeline— how does she pull that part off? Because I also don't get the sense that the Bahamas is considered this big feeder to the WNBA. You are correct. It is not. <laughs> um, but for those who are in elite basketball circles from the Bahamas, it's a small circle. And that circle went to work for John Quell. And so Coach Yolette McPhee McEwen, from, uh, who's the current head coach of Ole Miss, uh, actually went home to Freeport because she's from the same town as John Quell and saw John Quell playing for her dad. And you know, through some conversations, kind of asked, like, would you want to play in the United States? My coach um, in the Bahamas at the time, Coach Moon McPhee, he used to take us over to the U.S. all the time. And I just realized how much better at basketball they were than me. And then it got to the point where it was just like, yes, I'm getting better, but like, they, they have something over there that I just don't have, and I can tell, you know, like I can just tell with the resources and stuff. And so I think from like the fifth grade, I started asking my mom, like, can I please go to the States? Like, can I let, let me go? I want to go over there to play basketball. And she was just like, nah, you're not ready. You're too young. Sixth grade, same thing. Seventh grade, same thing. And then eighth grade, she finally was like, okay, like I feel comfortable letting you go. And, you know, I feel like you're mature enough to be able to handle that. And so Coach Yo placed a phone call to Diane Richardson, um, who at that time was the head coach at Riverdale Baptist School in Maryland. And so Diane Richardson got involved and had a few conversations with John Quell, then decided, you know what, let's make this work, let's make this happen, and brought her over to play for her. The first time I saw her play was when she came over to live with us. I did talk to her coach there in the Bahamas. He said she was like 6'2", and I said, oh, okay, you know. 
But when she got off the plane, she wasn't 6'2", she was 5'9", and a bean pole. <laughs> so. The way she tells this story is pretty funny. She says, you know, I took her right to practice, loaned Jonquil a pair of her husband's shoes, and Diane became her legal guardian. Yeah, I mean, she was 14 years old at the time, Katie, yeah. Yeah, she was pretty young, right? Like, leaving home at 14, moves in with this coach that she doesn't really know. How did you compare to the other players, your teammates, when you first moved to the States? <laughs> I was terrible. <laughs> I was terrible when I first moved to the States. I was talented, like raw talented, but not um, definitely not as skilled as some of the other players that I was playing with at the time. Our team was playing for the national championship, national high school championship. Every single person got in the game except John Quell. Riding home, she was crying, and I said, what's wrong? And she asked, why didn't I get in the game? And I said, I didn't think you're ready. She went on a tear with, with just working out, working out, working on the game, and she said, what do I need to do? And I just started laying out some things. This is what you need to do, and this is what you need to get better at. And she did everything I threw at her. How did Coach Rich help you evolve your skill? Yeah, just being constantly in my ear, telling me the things I needed to work on. I remember driving home with her from games, like crying, being like, Coach, what can I do to like just get on the court and help the team win? She took all of the advice that Coach Richardson gave her and grind it, as the youngins say, <laughs> and push really hard and just like really grew in to this athleticism and this potential that everyone saw in her. And she also got taller, which was helpful. So as she's continuing to make things happen for herself, she gets to number 17 overall in the country in her college recruiting class, which is a real accomplishment given where she started. And she goes to George Washington University, where Coach Richardson winds up as an assistant coach as well. And the college experience here in America, how would you describe that for Jonquil Jones? It was one where she was successful on the court, of course, continuing to grow and improve. And also, I think, like many young people, it was one of an intense exploration and sometimes tension in terms of figuring out who you're going to be and reconciling that with who you're expected to be. I remember like changing my style up a little bit and like, you know, just starting to really find myself and my identity like through clothes and stuff. And like, there was like this conflict between me being a Christian and my sexuality. And I was just like, nah, I can't do this. Like, I feel like I'm betraying, you know, my faith. And like, I threw, I threw away all my clothes and everything. I was like, I gotta get back into, into the word or whatever. And, uh, you know, I just made this drastic change. And I basically went through college kind of like fighting, fighting that and um, kind of feeling like I had to like put that side of myself kind of on the back burner. She was definitely, you know, kind of exploring her sexuality and trying to reconcile that with her faith. And at one point, you know, Coach Richardson tells the story of, you know, John Quell just coming in to talk to her. She and I were in the locker room and uh, she just laid in my arms and just started crying and just said, I don't know what to do. I'm not accepted either way. And what do I do? And she just cried in my arms. And I cried because I felt bad for her. Like, how do you express that? 
She doesn't know how to be herself and felt all this pressure to be girly in a way that didn't feel authentic to her. And that was a real challenge for John Quell. And we just talked about being yourself and you just gotta be yourself and you can't do it for other people. You've gotta be free. And at the moment at which she's presented to the world, basically, right? At the WNBA draft, like the way that she chose to present herself there, it, it doesn't sound like she sees herself in that person much anymore. I think that's fair. You know, the draft, of course, is a moment of intense joy. With the sixth pick in the 2016 WNBA draft, the L.A. Sparks select Jonquil Jones from George Washington University. Drafted number six, right, at a time where, you know, not a lot of people knew who she was. And so for her to go so high, like, that is just such a celebratory moment as far as where she came from. One of the first women from the Bahamas to make it in college basketball and get drafted in the WNBA. What does this mean for you and your country? Oh, man. First shout out goes to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, I have to say that, but the Bahamas is, is home. The Bahamas is where I grew up. And I just want to be an inspiration to everybody coming out of there that dreams are definitely a reality. And yet, you know, she said when she looks at that photo of her in this, like, dusty blue dress, it doesn't reflect who she is. You can go back and look at like my draft pictures. Like you see, like I'm wearing a dress, you know, like I'm wearing a dress. You can look at my first all-star. Um, I think we had like a red carpet event. I'm wearing a dress and like, now when I look at those pictures, like I'm just like, ugh, like I cringe because I know it just wasn't me, but I was trying so hard to be something that I wasn't. After the break, how learning to be herself wound up costing Jonquil Jones off the court. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Katie, you just established that Jonquil Jones gets drafted sixth overall to the LA Sparks in 2016. She is traded, it is worth noting here, the same night to the Connecticut Sun, where she remains. She's now in her sixth season there. She's 28 years old. If you were to watch Jonquil Jones on the court right now, what is her style as a player like? What's she like to watch? Man, she's so smooth. Jones, good moves inside for two. And this is a determined John Quill Jones in the first. She's tall, right? So she's 6'6 and plays out on the perimeter. Jones working on Peters. Takes her right to the hole in a big bucket for the sun. And John Quill Jones adds to her career high. It's still a great interior defender. What a block by John Quill Jones. Swatted it away from Fagbender. Great three-point shooter. On top, Jones lets it fly, and 
John Quill Jones hits the three. Just has this smooth stroke. That's that KD fadeaway JJ has, her signature move. People compare her to Kevin Durant. I think that's a fair comparison. I know she likes it. Jones looking for another three, and she's got it. John Quill Jones with her second made three of the game. She's just really fun to watch. Man, the Sun program has got to be happy with the way that this woman is playing and energy she's bringing. She's calm, cool, but you know, she'll get emotional. I describe her just like a joy to watch. And like the first word that always comes to mind when I describe her game is just smooth. She makes her first all-star appearance in 2017, just her second season in the league. She picks up two individual awards in back-to-back years with most improved and then sixth woman of the year award. And so she is getting that affirmation that she is capable of performing at a high level in this league. And in 2019 is where I think she really turned the corner in terms of really seeing what her ceiling could be um, and then also embracing her identity. Uh, So that was when she made her second All-Star team. That same year, she uh, published a piece in the Players' Tribune that talked about her sexual orientation for the first time. And also the Connecticut Sun went to the WNBA Finals. They ended up losing in five games to the Mystics, and she tasted a little bit of defeat there. But that year, I think, was sort of a culmination of this journey, and I gave her the confidence to really push forward and be who she is authentically on the court and off of it. It wasn't until I really came to the league and I saw, like, the strong, powerful women that were living their truth and doing it so freely and openly that I felt completely comfortable in being like, you know what? This is who I am. I'm going to embrace this. I have not just role models, but people that I can see doing it. They're doing it healthily and in a, in a great manner. And I was just like, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just need to live my truth. Well, as her stock is rising as a player on the court, how would you say that her stock in the social ecosystem of the WNBA is working out for her? Well, it's complicated. You know, I think diehard fans of the W absolutely know who John Quall Jones is. She's the reigning MVP, as we have established. And so if you watch the W all the time and you follow the league, you know who she is. But when you look at you know, her social following. You know, she has just you know, over 34,000 followers on Instagram. That is a paltry number compared to former MVP Asia Wilson and also Brianna Stewart and other players in the league. That part of it, I think, has been a real challenge for her. People show love, the players, the coaches, people that really know the league and, and, and what you're doing. But Outside of that, I don't really feel it as much. Who do you see as the face of the WNBA today? Ooh, face of the W right now? I would say definitely Stewie. Definitely Stewie. Definitely DT and Sue. OGs. Been around for a long time. Yes, Stewie being Brianna Stewart, DT being Diana Taurasi, and Sue being our friend Sue Bird. I think that's it. For me, honestly, I think that's it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's the hump for me. (laughs) So say more about your response to my hmm. 
No, I mean, I think your response is that they're all they're all white athletes, right? They're all white athletes, and our league is what eighty five percent black. So um, the hum is, you know, it's felt not just by the people that are on the outside, but sometimes by WNBA players on the inside. You know, for John Quell, when she really started to sort of look around and begin to ask these questions was after she was named MVP. You know, before that happens, there are all of these different reasons and excuses people can give for why you know, a player may not get the same kind of attention or opportunities as another player. But she had climbed to the top of the mountain in the best, most competitive women's basketball league in the world. And yet, it's not like everybody was beating down her door. I just felt like I've seen, you know, other people that have been MVPs in the league and just even just looking at people's social media, and I'm just like, like, how is it that I'm playing basketball at such a high level, but like, you know, the endorsements and the other things that are supposed to come with it aren't really coming. I just felt like it, it didn't feel fair to me. And so then, you know, she kind of looked around and was like, okay, well, what makes me different? And yes, race is a big component, but it's not the only component. The three of the athletes in the WNBA with the top followings are Black in Skylar Diggins-Smith, Candace Parker, and Liz Cambage. And so that's not the only reason, right? And even among the white players, a number of them are publicly out. Mm. You know, at least in Sue Bird's case. And then if you go further down the list with Brianna Stewart, etc., It's not just the fact that, you know, she's Black or that she's gay. It then, you know, you look at, okay, well, what else makes her stand out? Well, she presents herself in a more masculine way than other people do. And certainly than any one of those other names that we had previously talked about does. So it's not just race. It's not just sexual orientation. It's not just gender expression. It's all of those things together that for John Quell, where she sits at that specific intersection as she identifies it, when she looks out into the world, among women's basketball players that are getting endorsement opportunities, they don't look like her in all three of those ways together. And that is the difference. And I think one of the things that she's really grappling with in terms of asking the questions of, okay, like, why am I not able to access all of these opportunities and sort of searching for those answers? Yeah, so the moment where this issue really started to gain a lot of national attention was when Paige Beckers at last year's ESPYs goes up to accept her award. And the ESPY goes to Paige Beckers. And decides to take that moment to talk about the discrepancy between the amount of coverage that white players like her get and their black peers do. As a white woman who leads a black-led sport, um, and celebrated here. I want to show a light on black women. Um, they don't get the media coverage that they deserve. In the WNBA, last season, the postseason awards, 80% of the winners were black, but they got half the amount of coverage as the white athletes. And you have told the world that I matter today, and thank you, but I think we should use this power together to also celebrate black women. There was some research that was done that came out of the University of Massachusetts Amherst And what that study found is that white athletes received twice as many media mentions as their Black counterparts. 
But if you dig further into the study, they also look at how sexual orientation and gender expression affect media mentions as well. And what the study found was that sexual orientation and gender expression had no individual impact, if that makes sense. It, you know, if you just look at sex, sexual orientation, no meaningful impact. If you look at just gender expression, no meaningful impact. But when you look at how race interacts with gender expression, Black masculine players receive the least amount of coverage. And of course, it's one study. It was done over the 2020 season. Um, and so there are limitations, but it is the best data we have, I think, to describe the phenomenon that John Quell talked about from her own personal experience. Um, and media coverage and media mentions, you know, compounds in terms of jersey sales, in terms of ability to build a social following, mm. just having your name out there in the ethos, which I think speaks to something very intangible where and where we started this conversation, Pablo, about you not really knowing who John Quell Jones was, right? And so, yes, guilty. Right, as are so many people. But I have to imagine, Katie, that someone out there is listening to everything you just said and saying to themselves, wait a minute. So you're saying that all of these people, all of the stars that you say benefit from this sort of hierarchy of preference, all those stars, they, they don't deserve what they got, that you're actually asking for a special bending of the marketplace? You want consumers, customers to just suddenly start wanting different things? I don't think it's necessarily about customers and consumers wanting different things or a special bending of the marketplace. It's about expanding who has access to the marketplace for more people to discover that they might want more and different things. It's about more. It's about adding more seats to the table, not about replacing who's already there. And I think sometimes that gets a little bit lost in this conversation. Like, I am not at all about to make the case that Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart and Paige Beckers don't deserve everything that they've had. And also, John Quell would not make that case. While we're not going to take away from their greatness, that's not what we're going to sit here and do. Like, what we're saying is that there should be more room, more seats at the table to be able to bring more diversity. And to be clear, it's not like John Quell is on an island here. It sounds like, Katie, like even the people in the WNBA who are benefiting from the tilted market, even they seem to be saying very publicly that they've grown uncomfortable with the treatment as it's been applied. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I was talking to Kelsey Plum, who is a guard for the Las Vegas Aces and a former number one pick herself, you know, I asked her about this and I wasn't sure what she was going to say. And she just flat out came out and said what was on her mind. And that was that for the early part of her career, she didn't feel like she earned the right to be on her team's graphics to promote their games or that you know, she earned the right to be promoted uh, the way that she was because she was barely playing and barely scoring and felt like this was a league where you have to earn every bit of it. And she flat out said that she didn't. And she didn't feel that way. Um, and that she felt like she was getting preferential treatment because she's white and because she's straight. And frankly, she was just like, you know, it's a problem in our league, straight up. She said that she was pissed and actually that she was so frustrated that she blocked the WNBA on social media. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Like she went to the WNBA account and hit block. Full on, not even mute, just a block. <laughs> she's like, I'm done, I'm over it. 
And I tried really hard not to laugh, but I was not able to contain my laughter (laughs) in that moment. That's incredible. And I think that speaks to the fact that this is not a radical thought. As I had these conversations, not once did I have somebody say to me, oh no, that's absolute BS. That's not true. Everybody was willing to engage on these questions and be reflective and thoughtful um, and say, yeah, we have work to do. Coming up, what that work from the top down might entail. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. And so what is the blocked aforementioned entity willing to do about this, Katie? What is the WNBA as an institution trying in response to all of these complaints? What Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the league, has said is that she's trying to grow opportunity for the entirety of the enterprise of the WNBA and all of its teams and all of its players. And so what she wants to do is to grow the entire pie. That's her responsibility. And one of the things that she points to is that, um, you know, there have been reports that have said that only 1% of sports sponsorship dollars goes to women's sports. And a lot of that money goes to individual athletes like a Serena Williams, for example. And so there's just not a lot of money out there for a team sports-driven league like the WNBA. And so she's trying to move the needle on that. And then, you know, whether or not the league will cop to the existence of this issue beyond a greater marketing issue, uh, that I would say is not necessarily a thing that I experienced in my reporting. Mm. But in terms of the greater marketing questions around how to build more stars in the W, that is something that is very much on Kathy Engelbert's mind. So it sounds like their strategy here, because it's, look, the problem here is is bigger, right? It's more macro than that. It's about brands and sponsors <laughs> and media and and me again, as as I cop to my ignorance and all of this. It, it sounds like the league is saying we just need to give the sport 
as a whole, more exposure, more investment, and that will sort of flow to everybody from there. Yeah, I think that's a really good sum up of the strategy in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. Um, but then, of course, you know, there are systemic barriers that uh, Engelbert, you know, butts up against as well that aren't dissimilar from the ones that John Quell has experienced and talked about. There's still systemic sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, the intersection of all of those things together that, you know, consequently leads to a systemic devaluing of the assets around women's sports broadly and the WNBA specifically as a league that is majority people of color, that has a large representation of the LGBTQIA plus community, um, and that does have a number of athletes who express themselves in ways that subvert gender expectations. And so all of that together, that same intersection that John Quell finds herself sitting at, where she has found it to be hard to find individual representation, you know, Kathy Engelbert is trying to sell the WNBA on a macro level and is also dealing with those systemic barriers. It's just on a bigger, more broad scope. So as John Quell takes in the scope of this problem and this inequity in, in value, in stardom, what does the ideal future look like to her, do you think, Katie? What does she imagine? How does she think that she might get there? I think what she imagines for her future is twofold. Yeah, there is the very real desire to hang a banner in Mohegan Sun Arena. Winning MVP was up there, but like, Honestly and truly, like, it was amazing winning it, but, like, I want a championship. Like, if I could trade that MVP for a championship, I really would. And so her future, where she is individually successful, but her team is not successful, is not a future that I think she wants. But then for her, she just wants opportunity. She wants a seat at the table. She wants, you know, the State Farm commercial that she's done to not be the only time she has a national ad, not be the only opportunity that fans see her face in their living rooms every single day. She wants more of that and the opportunity to grow and be seen as the star that she is. The more we kind of tell our stories, the more we have people who are willing to listen and actually take the time to hear our stories, the more we'll get brands to realize that there's so much more um, going on. There are people who have amazing stories to tell and um, amazing things to kind of share with the world. And it sounds like she also has a pretty clear picture of what she's going to generally be wearing when she does all of these things. Absolutely. Nice cut chinos and a button up, for sure. (laughs) Katie Barnes, a star on ESPN Daily. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me back. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.